welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. In today's episode, I interview my good friend, Tony Morrison, founder and CEO of Motive Bio. Motive Bio is a clinical support tool for polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS. Tony is a biochemist who is wildly passionate about women's health, in particular, fertility and menopause. PCOS is a major cause of infertility, and it takes an average of three years for a woman to be diagnosed. Tony and I discuss why there's such a lag time in diagnosis and how Motive Bio can empower women to go into their physician's office prepared with data to help them get diagnosed faster. Of course, I also asked Tony about being a male founder in Femtech and what that experience has been like. He gives some really shocking and insightful stories that really get me fired up. Only Femtech could get me this juiced up, this intense at 9 a.m. on a Sunday. I don't care what time it is, where you are, I'm sure you're going to get fired up too. Enjoy. It was kind of an embarrassing Christmas dinner when I was launching Motive Biosciences, so um, I, I I tried to bring it up as casually as possible, and the look on their face was, "Who are you to ask me about?" And then and then the table just erupted in discussions because we're a predominantly female group, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they are overpowering in their in in their discussions anyway, and they just they went they went really deep into everything that they've been experiencing, and while they never questioned it it was interesting for me to kind of educate them a little bit about human biology, reproductive biology. And, wow. Uh, the male dad, the dad and <laughs> telling the women, the daughters yeah. about their own periods. Uh, well, my, my, my ex wasn't really into it. She, she, that was, that, those were the types of things that she didn't really talk about. You know, she, she made up names for uh, female sex organs and, uh-huh. and reproductive behaviors. Um, she was she's she's kind of a goofy fun loving person mm-hmm. and she adores her kids and she's always joking with them but i was more serious educational and then i think that it 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 started to come together at the dinner table that uh there there's a lot that they don't know about themselves and when they're comfortable about talking about themselves then they can explain that to their doctors they, they usually leave a doctor's office confused and yeah. now they feel more empowered and i, I love that oh um, god um, that's awesome. So how did you start to get into talking about women's reproductive organs? What's your background? Well, my background is biochemistry. I got my degree at the University of Maine years ago, but I started in computer science. I had this affinity for technology, and I, but I, but I fell in love with the biochemistry. And that's where my research in menopause and causes of osteoporosis and ovarian aging and reproductive health really started to take shape. And I was working with this wonderful mentor, Clifford Rosen, he took me down some really exciting roads because he was constantly challenging long-held beliefs in endocrinology and osteoporosis, and we were working on these clinical trials with these women. And I just had to become comfortable talking with them because I needed to I needed to get information from our for our research. Mm-hmm. 
And then shortly after that, I left I, I left academia. I went to a small privately held company, DSL, in Webster, Texas. I moved here, and and they were predominantly this pregnancy complications company. And we studied pregnancy complications like risk of Down syndrome uh, and, and, and preeclampsia. And I just had to become even more comfortable talking with customers and doctors and laboratorians about the diagnosis of some of these pregnancy complications. So I just kept building on on on, on my academic experience. Till what I really love about that. Sorry, go ahead. Is until eventually the word vulva and period and flow was like no longer an issue. Uh, no, and then you know I was more clinical in my descriptions of of um, of the work that I was doing. And even when I joined the the, the, the uh, diagnostic company, you know, we were in this discovery mindset all the time, and they were constantly, constantly pushing boundaries and trying to find new ways to use diagnostic tools. So I was constantly using this this reproductive physiology background and interest to 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 develop markets and to help customers use our our newer diagnostic products. Yeah. So you're the founder of Motive Bio. When did you start that? And what is Motive Bio? Motive Bio is a digital health and diagnostics company. We built an app and at home testing solution to help women take control of their fertility health and optimize their engagement with physicians. Uh, we're developing a clinical decision support tool that helps gynecologists better engage patients to aid in the detection of polycystic ovary syndrome. And I sort of had the idea back in 2012, and I can still picture that moment when I was talking to this researcher at an ovarian reserve workshop. Her name was Irene Sue, total inspiration. Um, I was busy with another startup, Onch Labs at the time, and over the years, this idea just kept growing, and I was talking about it with everyone who would listen. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone. Uh, it wasn't until after completing my critical commercial and regulatory projects for Onch related to menopause that in December of 2019, uh, 2018, I took the leap. Um, so technically it was January 1 of 2019. Amazing. And so, um, you know, this is very common verbiage and knowledge for you to, to you, this is very basic, but you know, a lot of our listeners are, either like your daughters, they're, they're slightly informed, but there's still a lot they don't know, or they are totally new to women's health and wellness. So can you walk us through what polycystic ovarian syndrome is and what does that have to do with fertility? Certainly. Um, well, broadly, polycystic ovary syndrome is a really complex set of symptoms and associated medical conditions. So I'll break it up into a few chunks. Um, being so complex, it also makes diagnosis very difficult. So uh, the usual suspects in determining PCOS include uh, anovulation or irregular cycles, hyperandrogenism or high male hormones, and polycystic ovaries. Uh, but I think metabolic function is also a very essential component. Uh, so there are genetic and evolutionary perspectives that are interesting to, to debate regarding whether PCOS is an ovarian disorder that manifests itself as a metabolic disease or if it's a metabolic disorder that manifests mm. as an ovarian disease. Mm. Either way, the associations of PCOS to obesity, metabolic dysfunction, weight gain, uh, insulin resistance, they can't be ignored, and they should be part of the diagnostic workup. Uh, there are also clearly connections between energy regulation and the female reproductive system in PCOS. So first, um, menstrual irregularities. Menstrual irregularities are a key indicator of PCOS, and women can have a longer cycle, greater than 45 days. 
called or, or no periods at all called amenorrhea. Uh, and classical PCOS involves anovulation when a, a, a mature, competent egg uh, fails to release. And this actually mm. is one of the major causes of infertility. Okay. About 90%, 90 percent of women who present with anovulation are actually PCOS. Mm. And PCOS represents about 30 percent of all infertility cases. Wow. How many women so, is that? Oh, uh, that could be anywhere from 8 to 25%. I think the conservative range is 8 to 18%, but there are so many women that are not diagnosed. Like 70% of PCOS-affected women are not diagnosed, according to most studies run by the CDC, WHO, and various societies. Wow. Can you can you try to just give us some numbers? Though? Like how many millions of women potentially have PCOS that aren't diagnosed? Or how many are diagnosed? Well, in the U.S., uh, there's roughly six... 0.2 million women that are are diagnosed, uh, but that diagnosis takes a very long time. Uh, there are studies that show that diagnosis of these women will take two or three doctors, sometimes three or four years before they're ever diagnosed. Um, but as you go across the globe and you go to you know uh, societies like India or China, where there are just hundreds of millions of women who are potentially affected. Uh, you could be like, talking about 350 million women that are suffering reproductive dysfunctions and that maybe 35 million women are potentially PCOS and have to be diagnosed. Wow. Uh, it's, it's a huge number. Wow. And so, you know, one of you're talking about one of the um, consequences of having PCOS is this infertility because the egg will not release from the ovary. What are some other consequences of having PCOS? I heard you say... 45 days of having your period, that sounds pretty rough. Um, but what are some other, you know? Well, it's 45 days, not of the period, but the menstrual cycle length. Oh, oh 45 okay. Days got it. Or not having a period. Got it. Got it. Okay. okay. So, yeah. uh, so a doctor might ask, you know, when did you have your last period? Or, you know, how many periods have you had in the last year or since our last, you know, since our last checkup? And if that number is shorter than eight, which would be essentially longer than 45 days per menstrual cycle, then they might suspect PCOS. You know, in a, but in addition to that, they might also want to do a pelvic uh, exam or an ultrasound, um, an ultrasound, because this is how you, you, you visualize whether or not an ovary has these cysts, okay, or whether or not it has this uh, presentation of follicles that are in the cortex of the ovary that sort of look like this string of pearls. In fact, that's the classical definition of PCOS is having this presence of a, a string of pearls in the ovarian cortex. Um, Whoa. And, so, and each pearl is like a cyst? Yes. Yes, correct. Got it. Yeah. The, the follicles are non-growing follicles that are distributed around the edge of the ovary called the cortex. Okay. And these follicles are about two to nine millimeters in size. They're they're visualized under a, a, a using an ultrasound, a transvaginal ultrasound, for the best definition. And um, doctors would use that visualization to count the number of follicles. Where twelve follicles or more might be an indication of PCOS, or an ovarian volume where the ovary ovary looks inflamed. Uh, uh, the ovarian volume is greater than ten milliliters. They might suggest that this is PCOS. Mm. Today, though. Ultrasound equipment is becoming so high res that they have had to change the criteria, and now they're able to visualize these follicles, and they're looking at numbers as high as 20 or greater. Mm. Excuse me, I just took some coffee. We're having an early morning interview here. 
Um, but I, I love to talk about women's health and wellness, whether it's 9am or 9pm. So we're, we're all good. Um, what made you so excited about making an at home diagnostic, um, test for PCOS? I think it was the fact that testing was inaccessible or not available or that women didn't know what they don't know. Um, see, with 70% of women not being diagnosed, there are a number of possibilities. First, the medical community is divided on how to diagnose PCOS. They're not standardized on how to mm. diagnose PCOS. And then there's the other complications, like women are tolerant of the way that they're feeling. They get used to this cyclical pattern and how they're feeling. And they 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 may not make the the trip to the doctor. They may not make the appointment. It just seems inconvenient. Then medical care is sometimes expensive, and it just doesn't seem like the right time to spend it. There are even other complications with so many women that are on a, that are on a hormonal contraceptive, like the pill or the patch implants or mm-hmm. IUD. These hormonal contraceptives will mask the symptoms that a woman might experience. And so irregular cycles go away because it flatlines the hormones. So the cycle becomes totally regular every 28 days and acne or body hair growth will actually be muted. And so the symptoms don't manifest and they don't go to the doctor because they don't have health concerns because the pill has pretty much masked those concerns. Is that a bad thing? I mean, like, is how, why is PCOS bad? Because unless you're trying to get pregnant, right? So like, what are the other, what potentially, cause sorry, I'm, I'm hesitating because I'm actually on a birth control for three years now that lets me not have a period. And so when you were first describing, um, you know, the symptoms, I was like, oh, and I was like, oh wait, no, my, I'm on birth control that regulates that, you know? And so why should a woman like me be concerned or not concerned about having PCOS? Is it bad? No, no, not oh. at all. In fact, it's one of the treatments. Oh, okay. So a doctor, a doctor will prescribe for regular cycles and for acne and for for dense body hair growth. Will prescribe the pill, um, but for women who do want to get pregnant or okay. for women who want to understand why do I have this irregular cycle? What why 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 can't we treat the root cause? Mm-hmm. And it is a problem. And so imagine that a woman has been a young woman has been put on the pill because she had irregular cycles. She goes to college. She stayed on the pill for ten years, but then. She meets the love of her life. She wants to start a family, and she's been off the pill for 6, 8, 12, 18 months, and she has highly irregular cycles. She's gained weight. She started to see dense, virilized body hair growth in very various parts of her body. Maybe her, her scalp hair is thinning. She's trying to figure out what is causing this, and her doctor is too. Like I said, a study showed that, that many women are not diagnosed. 47% of women will see a doctor for three or four years or, or see two or three doctors before they're diagnosed. This becomes a problem only when she wants to get pregnant. And so this major cause of infertility becomes a real issue when it matters to the woman and That's not right. until. And That's right. What, why, um, why don't doctors have some kind of standardized diagnostic test yet? Is it because the disease is that complicated or is it because there's a, been a lack of effort on you know getting everyone in a room and saying, we need to make a standardization and diagnose women quickly. You know, what, which one is it? Is it a social issue or a science issue? I, I think, I think it's a social issue as well as a science issue. In fact, 
there are factors that probably prevent a woman from seeing the doctor. Like I mentioned, it's yes. inconvenient. Yeah. Yeah. But also, she, she, she may not feel the time is right. She's on the pill and everything is fine and there's no reason for her to see her doctor. Uh, when she does have health concerns and her doctor might suspect PCOS, I think that's when it becomes uh, an issue that it hasn't yet been standardized. Mm-hmm. So in 2018, this large group of physician researchers had released these international evidence-based guidelines for the diagnosis and management of PCOS. And they have been struggling for a few years now. They've been pushing this international guideline for how to diagnose PCOS. And I think that the slow adoption of these guidelines has, has, has become, a, a, it's become an issue. Uh, for, for that group. But even before they released these guidelines, doctors were relying on three different diagnostic criteria. The first was the NIH 1990 criteria. And then the second was this Rotterdam criteria, the, the so-called revised Rotterdam criteria for diagnosis, which became the most widely used criteria for most countries around the world. And then another group entered the space with this androgen excess uh, focus. And so uh, high androgens, high male, high male hormones are predominant in PCOS women, at least in three of the phenotypes. And the Androgen Excess Society and the Rotterdam criteria, they seem to do very well in the diagnosis of PCOS. But in the U.S., many doctors are still using this NIH 1990 criteria. And I I think that this 30-year-old criteria, which hasn't changed very much, and it's been studied against the Rotterdam Rotterdam criteria and the Androgen Excess PCOS Society criteria, has formed poorly. A what study, a meta-analysis of all the studies that have been have been done on these PCOS women, that where they had the markers necessary to look at both, um, sorry, all three of the different criteria, showed that the Rotterdam criteria and the androgen excess criteria performed twice as well as the NIH 1990. Yet here in the U.S., the U.S. medical community persists in using the NIH 1990 criteria. Wow. Okay. And when you say doctors, are you talking like primary care physicians? Are you talking OB/GYNs? I think it's um, I think it's primarily the 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 OB/GYNs. I think the gynecologists are more likely to see patients where the the diagnosis of their causes of menstrual irregularities or virilization, the the hyperandrogenism. before they're before they're even seen for a pelvic ultrasound or uh, sorry for a pelvic exam or an ultrasound, the general practitioner probably is less likely to diagnose PCOS. But if we elevate the standard of care and we start standardizing the testing, there's no way sorry there's no reason why more of these diagnostic criteria can't be rolled out to all doctors. So the first time a patient presents with these symptoms, we get closer to diagnosing the disorder. Yeah, that's prioritizing women's health and wellness, right? Instead of being Correct. like, well, there's three tests like over the last 30 years that have been established and like OB-GYNs can just pick one <laughs> however they feel to go by. And But if we prioritize this as like, no, this is a priority. Millions of women are suffering with it. Most of them don't even know. And um, we need to make a test and we all need to agree upon it, right? Right. Yeah. Because I can't imagine that OB-GYNs don't want the newest data or don't want to help their patients, right? We actually have had, we've already had two gynecologists on this podcast, honestly, and I can tell they care a lot about their patients. And so I'm just like wondering, like, and you may not have the answer. I'm just kind of bantering with you. Like, um, 
like, how is there a lack of doctors all being on the same page? Is it like they're too busy or is it the, yeah. like the, it too busy? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, the average, the average patient doctor interview is like eight and a half minutes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think, I think the most conscientious doctors that give the most atten attention to their patients and the ones that are reading the latest literature and going to society meetings like the American Society for Reproductive Medicine or ESHRA or, or uh, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, these are the ones that are on stage presenting. They're bringing case studies to the group and they're sharing their experiences with, with their peers. The ones that are more conscientious because they have the time or because they just make the time and they're doing research and, and, and they're, they're working with, with groups around the world and collaborating, trying to elucidate causes of, 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 um, of, of some of these, these different symptoms that women are having that, that, could be, that, that could be developed into a pattern for how to better diagnose PCOS. I think these are the ones that are trying to shake up their peers and say, this is complex. And I know you're busy and you're seeing 40 patients a day, but how can we find ways to better engage our patients, take patient-generated data, track and combine this information so when these patterns erupt, we're able to get closer to that diagnosis that's aligned with the international guidelines that are so comprehensive. Mm. Well, I am um, on a mission to bring awareness and empower women's health and wellness, and I think there's a whole nother um, type of podcast for how do we disrupt the healthcare system, <laughs> right? And so, um, but what I'm inspired by is what I hear you say is like, w uh, physicians are really busy, but if we can empower women to be more knowledgeable about their bodies and what are potential, you know, oh, these are signs of PCOS. And I know like, w you know, millions of women have this, like, you know, just getting more data than just WebMD, right? That just tells you you have cancer all the time. Um, if we can empower women to be more knowledgeable about like, this is normal, this is not. I can go to my doctor and tell them this is not normal. And, you know, maybe it's PCOS because I'm an informed patient. Although I think doctors, you know, that, but like, I mean, that's definitely a mission that should be, you know, taken on and we should empower doctors to have more time with their patients and the healthcare system is broken in the U.S., yada, yada, yada. But how about empowering women? Does that, is that what Motive Bio helps with? Yes. Um, actually, in our, in our customer discovery exercises, we learn from the patient-consumer market segment that they feel confused, they feel... Um, submissive to their doctor there's a power imbalance um you know they don't understand it as well as their doctors do mm -hmm. and sometimes they don't even understand their own symptoms well enough to to bring them up and i think one of the common themes was you know i'll leave my doctor's office and then i think of a hundred other things i should have brought up mm -hmm. but the intercourse uh, uh, the interaction the discourse between the the patient and the doctor is is so rushed it seems mm -hmm. and they're trying to be thorough comprehensive bring all the details to light but there's just not enough time. And then they, they walk away a little bit confused, some dissatisfied, and they, they don't have a way to share this information with their doctor. But if they were able to use consumer-centric tools, consumer technology to track this information that's collected in the moment, it's more accurate. And if they're able to track that information, share it with their doctor, and this doctor's using it because it's not just WebMD. I, I, like, I like your analogy because there are a lot of doctors in our customer discovery exercises that said, I don't want patients coming to me after reading WebMD because every symptom <laughs> sounds like they have cancer. That was exactly what they said. Okay. And so they want something that is a clinical diagnostic tool. 
something that is cleared by FDA, something that if their patients are using it and they're using it to engage the patients, they know that it's backed by scientific evidence, clinical evidence. So walk us through Motive Bio. Like, what it what is the product look like? You said it's an app, but it, I'm also hearing at home test. What it, is it? A pee on a stick kind of thing? Is it a blood? You know what? Can you talk us through? Like, let us visualize. What is Motive Bio's product? Certainly. Let me paint a picture. So, Motive Bio is a application that helps track and combine menstrual cycle health, personal health data, and laboratory testing data. Laboratory testing is performed by a CLIA laboratory. It's a clinical laboratory test for hormones like anti-mullerian hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, and luteinizing hormone. Now, these three hormones can be easily run on a dry blood spot sample. And the dry blood spot sample can be easily reproducibly collected by a patient at home. And we've designed this at-home collection kit, which is easy for any woman to do with a finger prick, dropping blood on a on a on a uh, FDA cleared uh, filter card, and that filter card can be mailed back to the laboratory, and we return the results through the application. But we also combine that data with the data she's been collecting about her menstrual cycle health, her body parameters, and a self-examination tool called the Modified Ferriman-Galway Score, where she's able to get more comfortable with the hair that might be growing in certain parts of her body that wasn't there before she stopped taking the pill. Mm. And so a lot of the things that a woman needs to be comfortable with and needs to talk to the doctor about that could take longer than eight and a half minutes can be generated into a personalized diagnostic report, and the doctor has a complete chart to discuss with the patient. They're focused on the real health concerns with real data behind it, helping the doctor to get closer to a diagnosis, saving time, money, and reducing that time to diagnosis. Does a woman purchase and you know use Motive Bio before she ever sees a doctor, or does the doctor encourage her to use Motive Bio? We're looking at both approaches, and that's a great question because in our customer discovery exercises, the women wanted the information before they saw their doctor. Mm-hmm. That was the 100% of all women we interviewed wanted the information before they saw their doctor, mainly because they were confused and they wanted to make sure they were talking to the doctor about their health concerns with real data. They also liked the fact that this analysis, it was real data. It wasn't just a diary of their menstrual cycle days. They mm-hmm. were they were able to look at the data and they were able to see trends and they could see see uh, trend lines going up or down based on their behaviors or their or their lifestyle. They wanted that information before they saw the doctor. I think the doctors were split. Um, About 62% of doctors said they would use the data presented by their patient because they wanted the patient to be comfortable talking about this information. And 38% of the doctors said they wanted to order the testing. They wanted Mm -hmm. to be in control of the testing, and they didn't want their patients worried about things that didn't really matter until it really mattered. So I I was looking at the the sub-archetypes of that physician segment that we were interviewing, and among them, the ones that, the 62% that were all in favor of having this data from their patients, you know, realizing that some of their patients were not going to actually know everything about this data, Mm -hmm. but the data doesn't lie. As long as it's being collected accurately, these are facts, and the facts are important. That 62% of doctors were... We're all very familiar with the research or doing research themselves. They were participants on on various uh, societies, uh, clinical and research societies, studying reproductive health and, in most cases, PCOS, because I, I, I tended to get more interviewers that were, or sorry, interviewees that were interested in discussing mm-hmm. polyethical mm-hmm. research. 
And the other percentage, the ones that said, oh, I want to control the testing and the data, they may be a little bit further away from what PCOS's newest research is, you noticed. Correct. Uh, in, in fact, some of them hadn't read the guidelines. Uh, some of them said they saved it on their hard drive and they were waiting to get to it. But wow. it's, it's over 200 pages and, and it's a lot to commit to memory. And so one other aspect of uh, Femtech Solutions is that a software is a medical device that is aligned with these clinical guidelines. That will change over time as we learn more. These are evidence-based guidelines. So we expect them to change. Having a consumer-based tool that helps you to better engage your patient but is aligned with the guidelines should give confidence to doctors that may not have had the time to read these guidelines, but now they're able to quickly look at data, know there's a reference, and then search the reference so they can prove for themselves or, or, or get proof for themselves mm -hmm. that the sources are correct and that this is aligned with the diagnosis they suspect for their patient. Wow, amazing. And where are you in terms of development and your company? So I know you started it just over one year ago. So what is the timeline for women starting to use this product? Well, we finished the, the prototype and, and did the uh, public, uh, sorry, the private beta uh, uh, validation. And just before we were ready to launch the public beta validation, we had this lockdown period and there was just so much noise about the coronavirus pandemic that uh, we, we've slowed that down. Um, so where we are right now is a complete prototype. We've conducted the private beta validations. We've got patient user segment data and we've identified areas for improvement with some of, some of our patients that uh, give, give us some really user experience um, great user experience feedback that we're, we're we're building into our product enhancements now we are validating the physician user segment and we're preparing for clinical validations so one of the things we're working on is how do we build a physician cohort for validation of the clinical aspects of this application that are going to help us to align patients with physicians and uh and then i think most notably some of the relationships we built while we were doing our customer validations turned into channel partner relationships where we found other people who had similar philosophies and were able to work together to see if we can reach a broader uh, uh, customer segment of women that want more information about an array of reproductive health issues wow amazing yeah it's i mean it makes sense there's startups that you know um we had lindsay dr lindsay harper on here with the sexual wellness yeah. app right Right? And that was yeah, Rosie. I know. I I, I talked to her. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. I'm all about. I'm a router. I like to connect people. Um, <laughs> but she, you know, she created an app and uploaded content. And I'm not diminishing that effort, but it's very different than a startup that needs FDA clearance. It needs doctors on board. It needs, you know, yep. it, it's a yep. lot more CLIA certified laboratories and it's, it just takes a lot longer to get to market than, than some other kind of consumer products. Uh, this is true. Um, and, you know, being a, a startup in a seed stage now, ready to bring that prototype or the, the minimum viable product into the into the space and, and really prove whether or not this is going to work, there's a risk profile associated with that. And so mm -hmm. investors take a look at that very seriously. That That's a that's a challenge that yeah. we'll work through. Um, I'm, I'm undeterred. Uh, people call me <laughs> relentless. I hope that that's a good characteristic and I'm able to keep going. Yes, I love it, Tony. I've been working with, uh, for our listeners, I've been working with Tony for... I mean, maybe 10 months now, and he has been um, really awesome to work with based here in Houston. 
um, Tony, you know, your background is in women's health and wellness. And so you have had a long career of talking about women's menstrual cycles and ovaries and, you know, pubic hair, like you were you're talking about all this stuff. Now, over the last year, you've been in the startup world. What has been your experience as a man talking about women's body parts and women's processes? How is, what has that been like? This is a, this is a comical struggle. Um, I, I say comical because I'm in a room with maybe a hundred people talking to investors or uh, maybe, maybe just interested parties and, and it's largely men in the room. And I'm, I'm looked at as this femtech focused company, a guy talking about the ovary, like he has one. <laughs> and, um, among my entrepreneur friends, I refer to this as an obscure case of imposter syndrome. <laughs> and the, you know, the, the, the men will, the, the, the men will more or less become shy about the conversation on the topics. What mm -hmm. I love though, is that usually after these discussions or presentations, I'll stay afterward. And there are so many women who either know someone or have personally experienced PCOS or diminished ovarian reserve, or they've gone through IVF and we will sit and talk for hours. And I, I just love it because it's, it's not about the male or female, uh, you know, driving this, this, this initiative. It's about the problem we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you have to imagine that there are, there are medical doctors, gynecologists that are men and women that are working together to solve this problem. And while I'm not a medical doctor, I, I, I get so passionate about the biochemistry and I'm, I'm, I'm a problem solver and I'm talking with all, the, with all these doctors. This is about the problem. It's, it's, not about, it's, it's not about who you are and you know, what sex you are. Tony, can you say that louder for the people in the back? Because I've been preaching that for the last year. My, I'd never, ever, ever just say the word femtech. I say femtech. It's not about female founders. It's about the problem of women's health and wellness. Yes, like exactly. literally, I just, I can't just say femtech. We'll talk to them anytime you want. <laughs> yeah, because um, we actually just started a uh, Facebook community group. So listeners, check out, go to Facebook, Femtech Focus Community. And um, I noticed that there was not any other femtech pages except for one. It had about 600 members, and I looked at the page, and most of the posts, the content on it, were about female founders. And I was like, this isn't femtech, you know? And I was like, I have this little, like, army of interns right now, and I was like, we're making a Facebook page, and it's going to be only female, you know, health and wellness. And if anyone posts anything about, you know, top 50 women in corporate business, I'm deleting it because we really need to get away from thinking that the only thing that women have to do in entrepreneurship is potentially be a founder and get funding. Like, I feel like I'm grateful for that neuron pathway in people's brains now that when they hear the word women, they think, oh, yeah, female founder. But I want to broaden that neuro yeah. pathway to be like, oh, women, entrepreneurship. There is a, you know, discussion to be had about female founders and getting funding. But there's also a discussion about innovating for women's health and wellness. And that does that is not dependent upon the gender of whoever is leading it. Right. No, no, yeah. it's it's not dependent on that. But I, I think I, I think that if we're focused on the problem and we're looking at alternative solutions from people who have the experience and are able to challenge the status quo, that should be the focus. 
focus. And I, I, I'm reminded of this sort of love-hate relationship I have with a, a local investor here in Houston. We bump into each other at various meetings, and I tell him about the you know the latest advances and what we've been working on, what we learned from our, our experimentation. And the first question he asks out that comes out of his mouth is, "Do you have a female founder yet?" Uh, well, most of my team is female. Yeah. Um, and and while we haven't really organized the team, the founding team, because we're 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 pulling together advisors and we're and we're yeah. we're we're developing this MVP, that's the first question that comes out of his mouth. Yeah. And it's all about the female founder because of the perception of a femtech company being wow. founded by a female. I really wish that question was given to every male founder in every industry. I wish it you know, for every blockchain software out there and led by a man, I hope the first question he gets from every investor is, when do you have a female co-founder, right? That's what I hope in terms of female empowerment, in terms of founders, every industry should be getting asked that question. But yeah. being a femtech company, need, requiring a female founder, because it doesn't make sense for a man to care that much about women's health nope. and wellness. That speaks to why our society is so far behind in helping women's health and wellness, because we can't even fathom a man leading a company that is improving women's health and wellness. We can't even fathom it to the point that it's like, what, what's, you know, like, what's, I can't, it doesn't compute, you know, which is like, that's exactly the problem, y'all, you know? Uh, I, well, I wonder if, if people examined the culture rather than the, the the title after one's name you know mm. instead of tony morrison founder and ceo uh we're looking at tony morrison and the network of people that he talks to like sylvia hacker who also started her own femtech company like like julie hakim yeah. uh, who yeah. is my medical advisor uh like marla lujan from cornell who i go to whenever i have questions about the biochemistry and and, and I, I just and Irene Sue, like I said, was my inspiration seven, eight, nine years ago mm -hmm. when we were talking about what need what what needs to be done in terms of understanding a woman's ovarian reserve and ovarian aging. This isn't it is it isn't about the the person or the sex they are. It's about the culture. And I think we we the people I've the people I've relied on are really talented. They're experts. Uh, I. I love them to death. They, they've impressed upon me the importance of solving the problem. And I love them for their patient centricity. So the fact that they, they focus on the women, they, they really focus on how they're feeling. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's washed over me and has driven the culture that I want to create for motor biosciences as we form our team. Mm -hmm. Well, Tony, I'm just, I'm having to take some deep breaths because I uh, am reminded um, that why I love working with you because I know I can just be like, oh my God, this is what's wrong with the society. You know, I love talking to you about it. Um, but uh, let's wrap up with two more questions our listeners love to hear about. So we have a lot of listeners interested in femtech and are aspiring founders, inspiring um, entrepreneurs. And they want to do something in femtech, but they don't know what needs innovating. And, you know, I usually recommend just look at anything that has to do with the woman's life cycle. It probably can be improved. But do you have some specific, you know, uh, categories of women's health and wellness that you think truly are primed for innovation? Okay. Um, this could be a really long answer or it could be a really short answer. <laughs> um, in reproductive health. I have some goals uh, along my product roadmap that I'm happy to share with you. I'm just going to run through a quick list. But related to the data we're collecting, I think there's opportunities to improve the determination of diminished ovarian reserve earlier in life. 
understanding women who may be at risk of an early onset menopause or premature ovarian aging. I think that there are opportunities to better monitor women who are maybe uh, cancer survivors and to understand their um, their prognosis, uh, prognosis for fertility preservation. I think gonadotoxicity, environmental factors that lead to a compromised ovarian function, maybe just the chemicals that women are surrounded around, uh, surrounded by in the workplace. I think that deserves some attention. And hypoactive sexual desire disorder. I think really premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD, or really severe PMS. That's an area for uh, innovation. Uh, endometriosis. Uh, I think the most exciting innovations, though. Or when we look across different, um, we look across different digital health platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, take for instance, poor reproductive health and cognitive function. Cognitive health, depression, anxiety, is a hallmark of PCOS. Wow. Doctors will recommend women who have PCOS to also be screened for depression and anxiety. Uh, as women enter the menopause, they will go through this period of brain fog, and you know maybe maybe it's severe, maybe it's not so severe. But especially as one is aging, I think cognitive health is something that we should be monitoring because now we're looking at onset of Alzheimer's and mm. uh, any neurodegenerative disease that might be autoimmune related. These are areas where reproductive health and cognitive health could be uh, brought together. I think there's a terrific opportunity for innovation there. I think. The associations with uh, depression and mental health, with reproductive health, are important to look at. Um, and and it, it's not focused on mental health. It's not so much focused on mental health only for the, the female. But when you consider the femtech focus and cognitive health or, or mental health and what you can learn about the, the menstrual irregularities that could, could point you in that direction for, for a diagnosis of a cognitive dysfunction, I think that's really cool. Uh, there's also in pregnancy health and maternal health, I think there are op- uh, opportunities for poor endometrial receptivity, uh, leading cause of, of, um, of, of pregnancy loss, as well as complications of pregnancy loss like risk of preeclampsia and being able to determine women at a higher risk of preeclampsia. I actually have a study idea that I want to push. Um, <laughs> at some point, we should talk about it, but it's called PrEP, Pregnancy Risk Evaluation Paradigm. And I would really like to initiate a study that helps us to understand perinatal care and what data can be collected using the very same application that I built. Well, uh, any aspiring entrepreneurs out there, if you want to join Tony on his mission for all things Femtech. Yeah, I'm open to collaborations. (laughs) Um, And then one last question, Tony. Uh, I am all about trying to improve and grow the Femtech industry. Um, As a founder in the Femtech industry, what do you think our industry needs the most right now? First of all, as exciting as femtech is, it's becoming a very crowded space. Innovators in femtech are creating a $50 billion industry. It's not just out there for the taking. They're creating it because they're identifying opportunities for patient consumers that didn't exist before. Um, I think the most exciting innovations, uh, making sexual and reproductive function understandable, are going to help doctor-patient relationships, like we mentioned. Um, I think that... Right now, the most important innovation for Femtech is to appropriately medicalize patient-generated data, like we're doing to track and combine this data into personalized clinical diagnostics, because I believe this is going to help healthcare providers better stratify their patients for care, 
and reduce time to diagnosis and make, make testing and, and reasons for testing more accessible to patients so that we can reduce the overall burden on the healthcare system, but also reduce healthcare costs for the, the patients directly. Yeah. So, so the thing the femtech industry could really use is, you know, empowering the diagnostics in the, in the patient's hand so that it, she's actually helping empower her physician, which is then getting them closer to a diagnostic and treatment and a healthier life. Yes. I mean, everything from telehealth to at-home testing hmm. is, I, I think it all, it, the, the market right now is ripe for this because yep. people are demanding more information. You know, mm-hmm. and, and were, we're living in an Amazon shopping lifestyle too. So uh, we want to be able to get rapid access to everything. Not that it has to be instant gratification, but we want we want quick, convenient access. We want ease of use. We want to be able to we want to be able to take control of the next steps in our healthcare journey. And I think telemedicine and digital health and and these at home testing solutions are helping to drive that. But now we need FDA to to look at this seriously and to validate some of these tools and integrate them into a into a diagnostic solution. So mm-hmm. software is a medical device and the wonderful fast tracking program they put together. I think they piloted this program beautifully with companies that are as passionate as we all are about, mm-hmm. about how to use digital health. That software is a medical device program was excellent. I think we need to expand that. And, and I think, I think there's an opportunity to really change the way patients are delivered healthcare. Now, to get insurance companies on board with this as well, and to realize that patients should be in, able to initiate their own care. Mm-hmm. And they're not diagnosing themselves, but quantification of hormones or the, the ability to track their own information, to share it with their doctor, that should be allowable within the insurance, uh, the insurance payer community. And they should be looking at ways to use this to better engage their own subscribers, helping their subscribers to seek care when they need to. Because then you can get in front of the causes of long-term chronic illnesses which is going to drain the healthcare system mm-hmm. of its resources as well. Oof, Tony, we need a whole nother episode to talk about I'm that. Happy. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do it anytime. <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been so enjoyable. I love chatting with you. Um, check out Motive Bio, everybody. And um, Tony, I will chat with you soon, and I'll see you in person after the pandemic. <laughs> Outstanding. Thank you very much. Have a great day, Brittany. You too, Tony. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to my interview with Toni Morrison. It's fantastic to get more men on this podcast because regardless of gender, everyone should care about women's health and wellness. Toni also mentioned needing to work with the FDA. Well, there's another femtech founder that took the FDA head on for over seven years to get her female sexual health well um, enhancement drug to market. Sorry, I'm starting myself because this lady has been my role model and my boss babe crush for years. It's Cindy Eckert. Cindy sold her company Sprout Pharmaceuticals for $1 billion after she got her FDA clearance. We're actually hosting her on a virtual fireside chat on May 6th. Be sure to check out Femtech Focus's um, social media channels and our website to buy your ticket. You are not going to want to miss this. After you get your tickets to see Cindy Eckert, please support the Femtech Focus podcast by sharing it with your network and then subscribe, rate, and review. Until next time, keep innovating in the Femtech industry, regardless of your gender, because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.